WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. This week, the state Senate unveiled its $25.5 billion budget. It comes after last week the state learned it had almost $2 billion extra to spend. One big sticking point, teacher pay raises. Uh, Senate Republicans proposed a 1.5% uh, increase each year for the next few years and use that surplus money I just mentioned to lower individual tax rates. The governor proposed a 5 to 7% pay increase for teachers. The House still has to weigh in. Senate President Republican Phil Berger told WREL-TV in Raleigh, a huge surplus doesn't mean we're spending too little. It means we're taxing too much. You spend your money, people spend their money better than the government does. When the government taxes too much, we have a duty to either return it to the people for a refund or cut the rate of taxes. That's what we're doing. Well, joining me today to talk about the budget is the president of the North Carolina Association of Educators, uh, Tamika Walker. Kelly, she's up in Raleigh for us. Tamika, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, so tell me, where is the Senate president going wrong as far as where do you feel like uh, is the appropriate amount when it comes to teacher pay raises here in North Carolina? So I want to share first, you know, in response to the Senate's budget proposal, it's really important that we all recognize how vitally important public schools have been this year and how important they are to our communities all across the state. Our public schools are the foundation and they provide us with a skilled workforce, a strong economy and a healthy democracy. And it provides opportunities for every citizen to reach their fullest potential regardless of the zip code. And so over the last decade or so, we have seen the state's commitment to public education lose its way. And since uh, the Great Recession of 2009, our state legislature has continued to underfund our public schools. We have seen decreases in our state budget that have not kept pace with inflation and enrollment. We are spending about 20% less in student uh, expenditure. We have about 7,000 less teacher assistance, and we spend less on classroom supplies than we did in 2009. And average teacher pay is under $10,000 of the national average. And so one of the things that we see right now is we are at a critical point with our state budget process. The majority that controls the Senate, um, they have made their priorities crystal clear. And it's a very stark choice uh, that they have made. Our state is sitting on a $6.5 billion revenue surplus. But the party in the Senate has chosen to shortchange our students and educators on one side and completely eliminate corporate tax cuts over the next five years. And so no meaningful increase in school funding to reduce class size. Our educators get 1.5% raise this year and next year, which don't keep at pace with inflation. And our retirees who have dedicated uh, years of service to our public education system get zero cost of living adjustment to keep up with their state pensions. And so it is unfortunate uh, that this disvestment in our public schools is happening. Um, and we are going to make sure uh, that we as parents, as community members, as as educators uh, continue to take action and raise our voices because we love and support our public schools. All right, Tamika, you gave me about 15 answers right there, so uh, which, <laughs> is, which is okay, but, but let me unpack some of that. Um, you're making the case for teachers, public school. I, I'm a pu product of the public school. I know firsthand how important it can be. 
Um, and I also know that, that, that teachers um, have been through a lot over the last year. Uh, we spoke to a local teacher um, who, who weighed on this issue. Uh, take a listen. If, if there were ever a time for us to, to really show educators that we value them, that we, we, we recognize that we need them, that we need to show them how much we value them. And it's not just classroom teachers. You know, this budget calls for $13 an hour for classified staff. That's our bus drivers, our custodians, cafeteria staff, and other, and, and other staff members. And, you know, I mean, they form the backbone of our public schools. And, and we need to show them that we value them as such and, and pay them also, you know, in such a manner that they don't have to work extra jobs also to be able to pay rent. Tamika, do you feel like this is a slap in the face for, for what teachers have been doing over the last year? So this budget does not reflect uh, valuing our educators, our support staff in our schools, um, and all of the work that they have done at, during this pandemic. So we are proud of the work that our educators and our students and parents have done throughout this year and rising to the challenges that the pandemic has posed. Our educators continue to show their professional excellence in making sure that all students had the ability to continue with learning uh, throughout this year. And so, yes, uh, the Senate proposal um, is what we have uh, named uh, pitiful uh, because that 1.5 uh, increase over the biennium that they are proposing uh, does not keep pace with inflation. It does not professionally pay our educators. We have educators from our classroom educators to our education support professionals working a two or three jobs. Right, Tamika, some Tamika, of them Tamika, Tamika, just I, I, let, 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 me, um, let, let me interrupt you real quickly because I've got to get some questions in here and get your response to some things. Okay, so, uh, Phil Berger uh, issued this statement uh, in an op-ed in The Observer. It says, Republicans believe that every child possesses the ability and intellect to create their own success in life. Goes on to say to that end, Republicans created opportunity scholarship programs with grants to less fortunate children so they too can attend private schools. And we've invested record amounts in education budget, including per pupil spending and teacher salaries, although dollars do not by themselves generate a quality education. Do you feel like this is part of a, a broader uh, plan by the Republicans in, in Raleigh to undercut what is our public school system? So we've seen the continued disinvestment in our public schools for over a decade. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we've seen uh, drops in, in teaching assistance, over 7,000 fewer than we had in 2009, who are critically important in assisting our students in, in reading and other uh, instructional tasks. We have seen that 50% uh, drop in textbook funding uh, for classroom resources. And here's what we know. We know through our own polling here at NCAE that over 70% of voters, including 62% of Republicans, feel that we need to invest more in our public schools. And so it is critically important that our legislators in Raleigh uh, make sure they are listening to their voting constituents, because right now they are disconnected from what our students and our parents and our educators are asking for them to do. Well, I know. I can barely work out my own budget, much less the state budget. But I, I, I can tell you, I'll leave that to the professionals that, that we do appreciate all of our school teachers out there because we know that they've been uh, really uh, working overtime with last year and, and doing a superb job doing it. All right, Tamika, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, more Flashpoint after this.
A silver lining in the dark cloud that's hovered over the past year. A new study showing a huge decline in several illnesses. With more people getting back to normal, will we see these numbers spike? That's all coming up Monday morning on Wake Up Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint, folks. This week, a big vote by city council by the slimmest of margins. And we're talking about like five to six. Council passed the comprehensive 2040 plan. The plan is a blueprint for how the city will grow and be built over the next 20 years. Getting to this point has been a long, heated journey, mostly because of the debate over single family housing and zoning. WCNC Charlotte's Hunter Signs covering all the twists and turns over the plan uh, for the past uh, few months. Join us now. All right, so Hunter, lay it out for us. Still a lot of people I feel like, despite all the airtime we've given this, don't fully understand what the Charlotte 2040 plan is. It's been passed now. Uh, explain in a nutshell what we're talking about here. Yeah, so we haven't had this in several decades, but this is the blueprint, like you mentioned, for how Charlotte is going to grow, how it's going to be developed, which neighborhoods are going to see that development more often than others over the next 20 years. Clearly, if you just look at the real estate market, let's just take housing, for instance, we know that this place is booming. It is hard to find a house, yet alone get one in a matter of hours once it goes on, on the market. But the big thing here is to try to increase density is what many of the people who voted for the plan are wanting. City staff is wanting to see density uh, be increased here in Charlotte, as well as which neighborhoods see development, but without gentrification. So like you mentioned, it's a blueprint. It is an aspirational policy and plan, but really now it's when this council and city staff is going to get started because now we're gonna go into the UDO, which is really the nitty gritty as to how this plan really comes to life. Okay, all right, that brings me perfect segue to my next question. This, um, the, the, the 2040 plan is a, sort of a blueprint, as you say, it's non-binding. They don't really have to do anything in it. Then you bring up the UDO. now. This is when you get into the real weeds of governing and zoning, and it's never a, a sexy topic, but it's such an important topic. Explain to me now that they go onto the UDO, as you call it. What is that? So it's the Unified Development Ordinance, and basically it used to be how things were zoned in the city. Now with 2.1, single family zoning will really be thrown out the window and instead duplexes, triplexes can now be built on all place types. Basically in layman's terms, single family homes can still be built, duplexes and triplexes can still be built now basically anywhere except for HOAs, where, where neighborhoods where they have HOAs or covenants, those neighborhoods will still be safe from, from duplexes and triplexes if they so choose to be. But the Unified Development Ordinance is really where the city staff and council weighs in on how they want this all to work out. As you mentioned, this plan it can, can still be uh, changed in ways now going into the specifics of the UDO. This is where they will really vote on how it will all work out in the city of Charlotte. So we thought getting here was a bit chaotic. Just wait and see for the meetings over the next couple of months. And I think the number I saw at one point a long time ago, was something like 83% of, of the sort of lots here in Charlotte are listed for single family, which is in comparison to some of our, our sort of comparable cities, any big city is a enormous number compared to what some other cities are. 
Yeah, it really is. It's it's kind of staggering when you think about the city of Charlotte of the land that is used to build homes on how it's such a majority is for single family lots. You look at a lot of other places that are changing into these more aspirational um, futuristic plans. You have Minneapolis. I know we've done reports out in Washington state about communities doing it there. And so we aren't the first to do something like this, but there is still some uneasiness clearly on council with a six to five vote as to the implications, specifically the financial and economic implications uh, of what this will have 20 years from now. There's a lot of skeptics of wondering, well, we don't even have an economic impact study on this yet. So we don't know the implications that this means for business owners, for homeowners, for the market here in Charlotte. So there's a lot of questions still unanswered, though, Ben. All right, let's talk about the elections, because I, I know they could be changed this year because it's the other big issue in front of city leaders. Because the census delays, elections for city council district representatives won't be held until next spring. They can't be held because we don't have the proper information to draw those lines of the districts. We are, though, still waiting for the governor's thumbs up to allow Charlotte to still hold the mayoral and at large elections this fall, because technically those would not be impacted. Uh, so w where do we stand with that? When do we expect decisions to be made as far as are we going to all vote next spring? Or are we going to vote partially this fall, partially next spring? What do we know? Yeah, funny you should ask. We are expecting a vote on this by city council on Monday before they go into kind of their summer recess for the month of July. They really have to make a decision on Monday about this because filing dates start at the end of July if any type of elections were to be held this November. We have uh, heard of discussions, as you mentioned, about the mayoral and at-large positions uh, being elected this November. And the reason is, is because the census data really doesn't matter because they represent the entire city, not just one specific district where the population uh, change would matter as much. Um, so I did hear from Michael Dickerson um, with Mecklenburg County's uh, Board of Elections, and he does not believe that the mayoral and at-large elections will be held this November. He believes that they will all be postponed. Now that's just his personal opinion, of course. Uh, we will see what council decides on Monday. We know that the committee that was supposed to study over this has kind of given it to the council as a whole to decide. Uh, they didn't want to make uh, this decision themselves. So we'll have to wait and see, but it is a pretty interesting uh, debate. And one council member, Tark Bakari, as you probably know, is the sole person who voted against this entire budget because um, of pay raises for city council members and the mayor. So it'll be interesting to see how some of them will vote on an extra year for some council members uh, or if the elections, part of the elections will take place this November. Yeah, you brought up the budget. Uh, what do we expect that, that a vote coming uh, in the near term for that as well? And as you mentioned, no tax increase for anybody, but uh, we, we've got pay, pay raises for city council members and mayors, which, listen, I, I realize folks in our business love to beat up on them and say, oh, they want to pay themselves more. But again, in comparison to other cities, they're not getting paid or compensated um, what many other places pay their city leaders. Yeah, they really aren't. So um, it was an eight to one vote on the overall budget. And like I mentioned, uh, Tark Bakari, a firm believer in, in this one specific thing in the budget that he doesn't believe now is the time to increase pay for council members or the mayor. He also believes that it will make this kind of a career opportunity for people. But on the other side, you have Mayor Pro Tim, Julie Eisel and others who believe that 
council members already make enough sacrifices. You're talking about missed birthdays, missed dinners on Monday nights, missed uh, Monday night football games for some on council. So they're already making a lot of sacrifices and she believes that this will expand just how many people can get involved in government if it does actually pay um, for the time and effort and work put in by council members. So it's a divisive uh, subject in the grand scheme of things, but not really for this council because only one person voted against it. Well, yeah, but I mean, come on, as, as, you, as you know, if you're working two jobs and you're a single mom, you don't have time to go, you know, be a city councilman because you, you can't afford to. So maybe if they make it a little bit more enticing as far as pay, we can get a broader subset uh, of people doing it. Listen, there are a lot of talented people who, who work the government beat the city. I think we've got the best. Um, not, not to mention that he's got a nice looking fiddly fig tree in the background that we all <laughs> like as well. All right. Growing. Hunter, thank you as always. We appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Thank you for making WCNC.com your number one choice for local TV news on your phone and in your home. And trusting us on Facebook by giving WCNC Charlotte more followers than any other local TV news source. Thanks again for making us number one. Download the WCNC Charlotte News app and find out why WCNC.com is the number one choice for local TV news on your phone and in your home. The number one local choice for TV news is WCNC.com. Download the WCNC News app today. Experience the difference. Thank you for making WCNC.com your number one choice for local TV news on your phone and in your home and on Facebook by giving WCNC Charlotte more followers than any other local TV news source. Thank you for making WCNC.com your number one choice for local TV news on your phone and in your home. Welcome back to Flashpoint. As the pandemic forced everybody to go virtual, the Mecklenburg County Sheriff saw an opportunity for inmates to stay connected to, giving them access to tablets to call and message their families, plan future careers, listen to music, and even, yes, watch some movies. Sheriff Gary McFadden says the tablets help prepare his residents to, re the, uh, to return to the community as, as better neighbors. But as WCNC Charlotte's Nate Borabito shows us, still some say the jail is rewarding bad behavior at best, or worse, creating security concerns. Like the fact the sheriff also gave disciplined inmates in solitary confinement access to these tablets. Inmates who, according to the resident handbook, aren't even allowed to have access to newspapers or magazines. With COVID-19 limiting contact and the Black Lives Matter movement demanding change, new technology arrived in the hands of Mecklenburg County inmates awaiting trial in late 2020. During the pandemic, we have to think outside of the box. Everyone from a murder victim's mother. I think the program itself uh, can be beneficial. To the Fraternal Order of Police can see the positives of the 1,000 plus tablets now accessible beyond these walls. The tablet situation need to be, you know, reevaluated. But now that life is somewhat returning to normal. I think that some people are going to say, why are you rewarding these inmates? I'm not rewarding our residents. I'm bettering our residents. And we are learning more about the tablets, their features, and the rules governing their use. We want those people to still think about not wanting to return to jail. It's a concern for us because if you're in solitary confinement, you're there for a reason. There are more questions. Some people will say music and movies are a luxury. It is a privilege. A privilege for solitary confinement? It's a privilege. It's a privilege if you get it here. 
Long before voters elected Gary McFadden, he says previous sheriffs opened this door. Funded fully by private company Global Tellink and inmate subscription fees, the tablets went live in November and December. It's not just giving them luxuries, but it's absolutely giving them tools that they never had. They're available for inmate use eight hours a day with access to job training, books, music, movies. They can communicate with family. And even their families. We try to, to limit it to uh, particular people and um, that they put on their call list and vet them out. And, and of course, everything is monitored. Sheriff McFadden says the network is highly secure and there's no access to the internet. Still, prison tablets in other states, including ones created by this same company, raised security concerns in 2018. We're worried that those security systems could fail. Jolien Ortiz says the Fraternal Order of Police is concerned about safety and would like to see the tablets only offered as an incentive to inmates on good behavior, not anyone who can afford them like those in solitary confinement. If they've already broken the rules um, drastically to deserve that punishment, they shouldn't have a tablet. Isn't solitary confinement supposed to be punishment? Well, solitary confinement is punishment. Having your freedom take away is punishment. The sheriff says he is going to revisit tablet use in solitary confinement and is open to other feedback too. Yes, we will be criticized. Yes, people are gonna talk about it, but bring me a better solution and help me better these men and women GTL, which receives all revenue from the program, tells us the tablets and educational content that goes along with them will reduce recidivism. We want to have those checks and balances. Ortiz says the FOP wants the sheriff to track all of the program's successes and failures. The inmates are given so-called breakaway headphones to listen to their tablets. Headphones the sheriff's office says can't be used to strangle. And while the tablets are more durable than this one, the agency's already disciplined 46 inmates for breaking or damaging them. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. A silver lining in the dark cloud that's hovered over the past year. A new study showing a huge decline in several illnesses. With more people getting back to normal, will we see these numbers spike? That's all coming up Monday morning on Wake Up Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Before we leave you today, uh, a big thing this Pride Month, Las Vegas Raiders football player uh, Carl Nassib became the first active NFL player to come out as gay this week. I posted this on social media. I don't know a thing about sports, not a thing. But I do know what it's like growing up as a young gay kid. And until recently, there were very, very few role models. Perhaps the stereotypical character in a sitcom. Maybe you'd hear rumors about a pop star. If you're lucky like me, you had a, a cool family member or family friend having... Um, sort of serving as a good role model. You know, having prominent public multi-dimensional gay grown-up serves as a reminder to all the kids out there. It gets better. Come interact with me on both my Twitter and Facebook pages. If there's something you want us to cover here on Flashpoint, let us know. Something you liked, let us know. Something you didn't like, you can let us know about that too. And also make sure you listen and subscribe to our podcast. And we'll see you back here next weekend.